Happy Mother's Day to the mothers. Last Sunday in his sermon, Paul mentioned the Massachusetts pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards. And as Paul explained, while Edwards was ministering in Northampton, Massachusetts, his church and town experienced great revivals. One of my favorite sermons that Edwards preached at the start of the first revival is called The Christian Pilgrim, or The True Christian's Life is a Journey Towards Heaven. I'd like to read a couple paragraphs of that sermon for you to begin my sermon this morning. I think we have it on the overhead. This is Jonathan Edwards. A pilgrim is not inclined to rest in what he finds on the road however comfortable and pleasing. If he passes through pleasant places, flowery meadows, or shady woods, he does not take contentment in these things, but only takes a passing view of them as he goes along. He is not enticed by fine appearances to put off the thought of proceeding. No, but his journey's end is in his mind. If he meets with comfortable accommodations... At an inn, he entertains no thought of settling there. He considers that these things are not his own, that he is but a stranger. And when he has refreshed himself or stayed for a night, he is for going forward. And it is pleasant to him to think that so much of the way is gone. So should we desire heaven more than the comforts and enjoyments of this life. Our hearts ought to hold earthly things loosely, as a man on a journey does, so that we may cheerfully part with them whenever God calls. The question I want to ask this morning of ourselves is, are we living as Christian pilgrims? Are our hearts set on journeying toward heaven? Do we have the final destination in our minds? Or have we settled in comfortably along the way? In other words, the question I'm putting to all of us this morning is, are we living the life of faith? Paul has asked me to preach from Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Um, So this sermon won't be... Uh, Mother's Day sermon per se, but I hope that it will be an encouragement to the mothers and to all of us. As many of you know, Hebrews chapter 11 is the great chapter about faith. And the argument of my sermon this morning is that according to Hebrews chapter 11, faith is the vision a pilgrim has of his final destination. Faith is the vision a pilgrim has of his final destination. And I want to develop that idea by looking at four objects that faith focuses on. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to be here this morning. And we are more thankful, O God, to be journeying towards heaven. We know that it's your work in our lives that is 
brought us this far, and it is your grace that will lead us home. And Father, in a culture and in a time where there's so much confusion about what faith is, we need to hear from your word this morning. And we pray that you would shape our understanding and more importantly, Lord, that you would shape our lives. That we, like the heroes of old, might walk by faith and might reach that great city that you have built and prepared for us. So we pray, Lord, please come here, be with us now. Help me to preach faithfully and be honored and glorified in our time together. We ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open to Hebrews 11. Since this is a longer chapter, we're going to skip around a little bit. But we're going to start in verse 8. So I'd invite you to look at Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now remember that when Abraham left Ur and then Haran, he was already a wealthy and well-connected man. His kindred and his father were in Haran, and he had gathered many possessions and acquired servants. And so why would he leave this pleasant and financially secure life to dwell in tents in a foreign land? We know that he moved by faith, which you will notice at the beginning of verse 8 and verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. But what did his faith focus on? Let's keep reading. I think that Abraham's faith is explained in the next verse, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham left his country because he was looking forward to the city of God. It was his vision of the future that was motivating him in the present. And thus we see the first object of faith in Hebrews 11. Faith focuses on the future, at least for its motivation. Abraham walked by faith, and verse 10 indicates that as he traveled, he was looking forward to the city of God. Notice now the following verses in which we learn about the second object or focus of faith. Let's read verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, 
since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So if Abraham's faith is focused on the future, what does this passage tell us about Sarah's faith? What was it focused on? Sarah's faith was focused on the promises of God. Look at the second half of verse 11. She considered him faithful who had promised. And that's faith. Faith believes in the promises God makes because faith considers the God who makes the promises to be faithful. Now in saying that faith is focused on the future, and faith is focused on God's promises, we are in fact saying one thing in two different ways. Look back at at verse 9. What does it say? By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of what? Promise. Right. And he lived with Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same what? Promise. The same promise. So what was promised to Abraham? Well, it was the land. It was the inheritance. And as we learn in verse 10, it was a city too. So we could say that Abraham's faith was not only focused on the future, but it was focused on God's promises. We could equally say that Sarah's faith was focused not only on God's promises, but the future. Because when she was trusting God for a son, was that son born yet? No, of course not. Isaac was going to be born in the future. So, according to Hebrews 11, 8 through 12, this paragraph, we might say that faith is focused on the things God has promised for the future. Or we could say that faith is focused on the promises of God concerning our future. Notice also how these two objects of faith relate in verses 13 through 16, the next paragraph you'll see the paragraph begins like this. These all died in faith. And then the rest of the paragraph describes what their faith looked like. Let's read. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Do you understand the the picture that the author is making here? It's as if there are things way out in the distance in the future, the things God has promised. And faith is the sight that the pilgrim or the stranger, the exile has of those things. He sees them from afar and he greets him. That's faith. Let's keep reading verses 14 through 16. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So we can see two objects of faith on display in verses 8 through 16 in this entire section. Faith is focused on the future, and faith is focused on the promises of God. Now all this may seem evident to you, but I want to pause and to consider two implications of this for a moment. First, that faith is focused on the promises of God. This is so important. Because I am convinced, and maybe you'll agree with me, that much of the pain and the disappointment that Christians experience in this life is from expecting to receive things that God has not, in fact, promised for this life. Think about it. All of us have experienced the pain and the disappointment of unmet expectations. God, why haven't you given me that better job that I've been hoping for? I've been working so hard for it. God, why haven't you brought me a spouse yet? You know that I really, really want one. God, why aren't my kids turning out like I want them to, like I planned? I've been praying and praying for them. God, why can't we stay in this beautiful building? So many doors for ministry have already been opened. But did God ever promise in his word that hard work would always lead to a better job? Or that strong desires would ever and I mean always lead to a spouse, especially in our own timing? Or did God always promise that persistent prayer would inevitably lead to godly children? Or that effective ministry would always lead to a church building? These things are good things, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't desire them or pray for them. But let's be careful not to cross the line and believe somehow that God has promised them to us. Because if we do, we will be building our faith on sand. If our faith is focused on those expectations that we have those plans that we have made for our own lives, if our faith is built on that, then when the rains come and the floods come and the winds beat against us and God takes those things that we have expected away from us, we might find that our faith is destroyed also. But if our faith is built on the rock If we grasp the promises of God, then no storm will ever shake our faith. So let's be careful how we build King of Grace Church. What are we trusting God for? Faith, according to Hebrews 11, is focused on the promises of God. Let's consider one more implication. I said earlier that faith, at least in terms of its motivation, is focused on the future, which is actually a somewhat controversial point to make because we might assume that faith should be primarily focused on the past for motivation and not the future. 
Someone could argue that the Christian faith is focused on Jesus Christ, His cross, His death, His resurrection, which happened in history 2,000 years ago. And so faith looks backward to the cross for its motivation. And that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? So which is it? Is our faith primarily focused on the past for the journey of faith? On what God has done for us? Or do we look forward to what God will do for us in the future? And I have two responses to this question. First of all, if you know the book of Hebrews at all, you'll know that the sacrificial death of Jesus is all over this book. In chapter 1, it mentions Jesus making purification for sins. Chapter 2 speaks of Jesus partaking of flesh and blood and dying for our deliverance. Chapters 4 and 5 called Jesus our great high priest who suffered for our salvation. Chapter 7 describes how Jesus offered up himself as priest in order of Melchizedek. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 all describe how Jesus' blood is the start of a new and better covenant. Jesus' death is everywhere in the book of Hebrews. And it is clearly something that Christians must believe in. But then there's a, a funny thing. When we come to chapter 11, that great chapter about the journey of faith, you won't find Jesus' death mentioned once. Not once. Doesn't that strike you as a little strange? Someone might respond and say, well, this chapter is discussing Old Covenant saints who lived before the time of Jesus. That's why we don't find a mention of Jesus' death. And yes, that's true. But then how could these Old Covenant saints function as a model for our faith after Jesus? How can the author of this letter describe genuine faith before the time of Jesus? You'll notice also that there is not in this chapter even a single word about sacrifices for sin or about the priesthood or any of the things in the Old Covenant which could atone. It never mentions it in this chapter about faith. Even though it talks about the Abraham's faith, Sarah's faith, Moses' faith, the faith of the prophets, it never mentions God's grace of forgiveness as the focus of faith. So my question is, why? Why is that? And I want to make sure now that no one misunderstands me. I am not suggesting that a Christian doesn't need to believe in Jesus' atoning death for sin. Our whole faith is built on Jesus' death for sin. And his death and resurrection is absolutely foundational for our faith. What I am suggesting, though, is that the motivation for the life of faith and the power for obedience comes primarily from the future in what God has promised that He will do for us. We were singing earlier today, and I really appreciate the songs that Mitch chose. There was one line that I noticed, you know, when it talks about trials all around us, said, we know that the outcome is secure, that the future is secure. 
And so when we face a trial or test of faith like Abraham and Sarah did, we will not find the power to obey by looking backward in gratitude to the cross as if to say, God, you have done so much for me, and I appreciate that so much that now I'm going to choose to obey you in the present and into the future. It's not as if we say, God, I am motivated to obey because what you have done, and so I'm going to attempt to pay you back for what you have given to me. Gratitude is not meant to motivate Christian obedience. Rather, knowing from the cross that God is faithful, we should focus our eyes of faith on the future, on what God has promised He will do for us. And this is how we make our journey through the difficult places. This concept that faith for endurance is focused primarily on the future and not the past is one of the most important things I learned from my former pastor. If you haven't read this book, Future Grace, I would highly recommend it to you. It changed my life. And the central argument of this book is that the promises of future grace are the keys to Christ-like Christian living. Consider this paragraph. We have it on overhead. Gratitude is not set forth in the Bible as a primary motive for Christian living. Gratitude is a beautiful thing. There is no Christianity without it. It is at the heart of worship. It should fill the heart of every believer. But when it comes to spelling out the spiritual dynamics of how practical Christian obedience happens, the Bible does not say that it comes from the backward gaze of gratitude but that it comes from the forward gaze of faith. If this is still confusing to you, let me offer my second response as to why I think practical Christian obedience happens when faith is focused primarily on the future. Let me draw your attention again to the pilgrimage imagery that is so prominent in Hebrews 11 8 through 16, in which Jonathan Edwards wrote about. Think also about Pilgrim's Progress. Have any of you read Pilgrim's Progress, that great book by John Bunyan? Yeah. If you remember, early on in that story, Christian enters through the wicket gate to the place of deliverance. And if you remember, his burden falls off there and he is freed. And then he starts on the straight and narrow King's Highway. And my question to you is this. While Christian is traveling on that straight and narrow highway, does he spend most of his time looking backward to the place of deliverance? Or does he spend most of his time looking forward to the celestial city? Or when Christiana... His wife follows after him and she retraces the same pilgrimage that her husband Christian made. Does she find strength to continue in her journey by focusing primarily on the past and the place of deliverance or does she too look forward to the celestial city? And that is what 
is motivating her? Well, I think it's the celestial city for both of them. And I think Bunyan had it right. And Jonathan Edwards, in talking about the life of faith, had it right. Yes, Christian and Christiana could look back to the place of deliverance to reassure themselves that they were on the right road and that when, in fact, they did reach the celestial city, they would be welcomed there. They needed that passport, if you remember, from the place of deliverance to be received in the city of the king. But it's the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the celestial city and the God who dwells there that keeps them going on the journey. Their faith is their vision of the final destination. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, how this chapter, a great chapter, starts, you'll see faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Things hoped for, that is, in the future. I'm laboring to to make this clear because the cross is absolutely essential. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, we would never be journeying to heaven. And we would never be allowed into the presence of of the Holy God when we arrived. But the cross is not our destination. It's our starting point. And it is not ultimate. The cross is designed by God as a means to an end. The end, God's final purpose, the end of the journey, is fellowship with the people whom he's created in the new Jerusalem. That's the destination. And it is the cross and the cross alone that makes that possible. So if you want to live the life of the Christian pilgrim, you must know something about where you are going. You must have confidence that God is going to provide everything you need to get there. You must believe that the final destination makes the whole journey worth it. In short, you must have faith in the promises God makes concerning the future. Let's move on. We've seen that faith focuses on the future. It focuses on God's promises. Now turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. Let's read that passage together. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And here is the third object of faith, faith focuses on the reward. It is important to note that the Bible never denies that there is pleasure in sin. For Moses to be the prince of Egypt and to enjoy the treasures of Egypt, there is no doubt that there would have been pleasures in that life. 
And as we think of some of the temptations to sin in our own lives, there is no doubt that sin does offer some pleasure. There is pleasure to be had in getting wasted on the weekend. That's why so many people do it. There is a certain thrill in a one-night stand. There is something exciting about making lots and lots of money and buying more and more things you don't need. There is a certain kind of pleasure in getting angry or holding a grudge. There are pleasures in sin everywhere. And I don't deny that. And the Bible doesn't deny it either. But notice what the Bible does say about these pleasures, the pleasures of Egypt. Verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The pleasures that sin offers are fleeting. They won't last. In fact, where they might taste sweet in your mouth, in your stomach, they will be bitter. They will never bring true or lasting happiness. So how do you conquer the pleasures of sin? How did Moses refuse the pleasures of Egypt so that he might be identified with the people of God? Verse 26. He considered suffering for Christ to be a greater wealth, a better treasure, a more satisfying pleasure. He had faith. He was looking to the reward. Of all the verses about faith in Hebrews 11, perhaps the clearest one of all is in verse 6. This is the... uh, We're not quite here yet, John. Um, Hebrews 11, verse 6, which is the memory verse in the bulletin. If you would turn there, we're going to read verse 5, and then I'll have you listen carefully to both 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So how did Enoch please God? He had faith. Now, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So without faith, you cannot please God. With faith, you can please God and will please God. And what is faith? I think the rest of the verse describes it. Whoever... uh, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So do you want to have faith? Do you want to please God? You only need to believe two things. One, that God exists. And that God will reward you if you seek Him. And the second part is so crucial. So many people think that you only need to believe in God in order to have faith. I remember it very clearly. I was spending the night at my friend's house when I was a young teenager, and we were lying there in the dark in our own beds, 
And he knew that I was a Christian. And he said to me, Alex, I believe that God exists. Isn't that enough? And what I remember saying to my friend that night is still how I'd answer the question today. I said, Dan, even the demons believe that God exists. If you believe that God exists but do not seek Him for reward, all you have is the faith of a demon. If you want faith in the full, the biblical sense, you must believe that there is reward with God. A reward that far outweighs the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, I realize that this sounds foreign to many Christians. What? God wants me to seek Him for reward? God wants me to come to Him for pleasure? God wants me to seek my joy and my happiness in Him? And the answer that Hebrews 11.6 gives is yes. God is pleased and He is glorified when we draw near to Him for reward. And you don't have faith if you aren't seeking your treasure in Him. Look over at verse 16, which we've already read. It says that Abraham and Sarah desired a better country, a heavenly one. And what is God's response? Does He say to them, No, don't desire that better country. That's selfish. You should seek Me with no thought of a reward. No, it says they desired a better country and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. God will never be ashamed of you if your faith focuses on His promised reward, His reward in the future. No, He will be well pleased and glorified. At this point, before we examine the fourth object that faith focuses on, I have to mention something that Hebrews 11 itself mentions repeatedly. And that is that the journey of faith is not always easy. As we read in Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, by choosing the reward, Moses was also simultaneously choosing mistreatment and danger, and suffering. And to emphasize this, I'd like to read the paragraph that runs from 32 to 38. So if you're not there, please turn there. Hebrews 11, 32 to 38. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, Obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of the fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now if the list ended there, you might be justified in thinking that the life of faith was one of earthly success and victory all the time. But without warning, in the middle of verse 35, the list continues in this way. 
Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. So how do you gain the courage to face torture and to remain faithful even to death? Well, you must believe that you are going to rise to a better life. You need to look forward to the reward. Verses 36 through 38. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. There's a... This is a beautiful phrase, I think. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Last Sunday afternoon, Betsy and I participated in the Bradford Care Group. And I cannot tell you how encouraged we were to be a part of the group that day. We heard some testimonies from saints of whom this world is not worthy. There are people in our group who are facing financial difficulties. People who are facing hurts from the past. People who are anticipating trials ahead. And as one person in our group said last week, the life God has given us is hard right now. But there are so many blessings in it. And I want to just say this morning, yes and amen to that. The journey of faith to heaven is hard. There will be suffering. We will need to take risks. God may call some of us or all of us at some time to put aside comforts that we have become accustomed to. But in the midst of it, there is joy. And there is great reward. And for those who continue on faithfully, there is a city without foundations whose designer and builder is God. As you probably know, the verse and chapter divisions in the Bible are artificial. They were added centuries after the books were originally written. And in the case of Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12, I think they're the chapter division comes at an unfortunate place since Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 at least, is so connected to Hebrews chapter 11. We have seen three objects that faith focuses on thus far. The future, God's promises, and God's reward. Now I want to suggest to you a fourth object. And John, if you could put on that slide. Notice the following parallels in verses 10, 26, and then Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, for he was looking at what? He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 26. By faith, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking at what? To the reward. So you notice the same verb there, looking and looking. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, and here it is again, looking to what this time? In Hebrews 12.2. Jesus. Right. Looking to Jesus. True Christian faith focuses on Jesus. And I want to observe two things about faith's focus on Jesus in verse 2. First, faith focuses on Jesus as the perfect model of faith. Faith focuses on Jesus as the perfect model of faith. If you were to ask me, did Jesus live the life of faith like Abraham and Sarah and Moses did? I would say yes. Only Jesus, of course, was without sin. But I do believe that Jesus had faith. And notice what the great trial of Jesus' life was that the, he, that the author of Hebrews mentions in verse 2. It is, of course, the cross. And how was Jesus able to endure the cross? How did he face the shame the humiliation, the horror of the cross, of bearing sin and absorbing the wrath of God. How did he do that? Well, verse 2 tells us, it was for the joy that was set before him. Jesus was looking forward. Jesus was trusting in God's promises. He was looking to the reward on the other side of the cross. He was focusing on being seated at the right hand of God where he would reign and redeem a people for himself. Jesus had the vision of a pilgrim looking to his final destination and that is what sustained him in his greatest trial. So if you would have faith, be like Jesus. One of the verses we skipped in chapter 11 was verse 27. Let's read it. By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured, Moses endured, how? As seeing him who was invisible. Moses was able to endure because he saw him who was invisible. And so too in the Christian journey, we endure by seeing Jesus, not with the physical eyes yet, but with our spiritual eyes, the eyes of faith. And faith focuses on Jesus, not only as the perfect model of faith, but secondly, as verse 2 says, as the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the founder of our faith in that his incarnation and death made our faith possible. This word founder occurs in Hebrews 2.10 to describe Jesus who by the grace of God tasted death for us so that we might live. So he is the pioneer. He is the one who establishes our great faith. He is the founder. But Jesus is also the perfecter, the finisher, the finisher of our faith. When and how does he do that? 
Look at verses 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Not yet. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So according to these verses, Abel is waiting. Enoch and Noah, they're waiting. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the prophets, they are waiting for something which they have not yet received. Something that was promised to them. Something in the future. Some reward. In one sense, they're waiting for us. Because apart from us, they will not be made perfect. Not one of God's people will receive the fullness which God will provide until every last saint has completed the journey. We are all, all of us together, waiting for Jesus to appear a second time. We are waiting for the new Jerusalem, the city of God, to descend to earth. We are waiting for life in the celestial city to dwell with the king. And so the four objects of faith in Hebrews 11 are really only four dimensions to the one focus of our faith, God himself. He is the one who is awaiting us in the future. Pure and unimaginably joyful fellowship with him is what has been promised. He himself is the great reward. Here's one final quote from Edwards' sermon on the Christian pilgrim that I wanted to close with that speaks to God being the reward at the end of our journey, the journey of faith. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. And let me just pause here and say a word directly to the mothers, even though this isn't a Mother's Day sermon. You'll notice that Edwards says, mothers, that you are shadows. And that is not meant as disrespect to mothers, not at all. In fact, a mother's highest calling is to be a shadow of God, to be a pointer to God, to show her children that her love is just a reflection of God's love. And I have been blessed with my own mother and my mother-in-law who is here today and my wife who is now a mother, that they are on this journey of faith. And my own mother has gone before me, beckoning me to come with me, to come have me follow her on the journey of faith. But she is just a shadow. And she is happy to be a shadow. But the enjoyment of God, as it says, is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. 
These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to be on this journey. And Father, I pray that as we read your word, as we consider these things, that we would have a glimpse of the glorious future that is awaiting us. The city of God, dwelling in your presence with pure and unimaginable joy forever and ever into the ages of ages. And Lord, as we look forward to the future, to what you have promised, to the great reward, I pray that you would sustain us on our way. I pray that not one here this morning, Lord, would turn aside and would take that broad road that leads only to destruction. But Lord, keep us faithful. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And be glorified in our lives, Lord, as we journey home to you. We pray in the name of your Son. Amen. As the band comes up, I have asked Mitch to close with the song, I Will Glory in My Redeemer. I have requested this song especially for the closing lines of the third stanza, which we will sing soon. They say, I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. Jesus is the focus of our faith. He is the final destination of our pilgrimage and He is waiting for us at gates of gold. And when He calls us, it will be paradise. His face forever to behold. His face forever to behold. His face forever to behold. Amen.